0: So again, my name is Jordan, one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Um, When I was about 17 years old, uh, I had a big date on a Friday night. My parents let me borrow their car. I got a haircut, uh, took a shower, uh, put about 17 sprays of my Nautica cologne on, and got ready to go to my date's house. Now in... Uh, The 90s, and millennials, this might hurt your feelings a little bit, this was pre-cell phones, pre-beepers, and if you wanted to go pick someone up, you couldn't just go and text them and say, hey, I'm outside, come outside. You had to do one of two things. You could either go and honk the horn, or you could go and ring the doorbell. Uh, My date told me, under no circumstances are you to sit outside and honk the horn and expect me to come out. My dad is not letting me leave the house with some leave the house with some young punk that's just honking a horn. You need to come in and meet him. He wants to meet you." Uh, I got to the house, uh, got out the car, rang the doorbell, got into the house, and I waited in the living room for her father to come out, and he came out like with baby oil on his chest, looked like he had just been doing push-ups. <laughs> and as soon as I put my hand out to shake his hand, uh, I'll never forget these words when he asked me. He looked at me and he said, "'What do you want with my daughter?' Now. I was just trying to go see the Matrix. I'm like, bro, I'm not, (laughs) I don't have like a life plan figured out. We got 20 minutes and I need my butter popcorn and it's a long line. We just need to move forward. And quite honestly, at this point, I just wanted to leave with or without her. I was happy (laughs) to not be near him now. As a dad, I can understand what was going on in his mind. uh, But that question, even though it was 20 years ago, has pierced right through me. And it's something I remember to this day. That's a great question. What do you want? What are you hoping this interaction leads to? What is the outcome that you're hoping to uh, to achieve in this relationship? Jesus asks some followers of his the same question. In John 1.38, uh, there's a place where Jesus is talking to some people that wanted to follow him. And it says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What is it that you're hoping this interaction will lead to? What is it that you're actually in search of? What do you really want from me? Now, I have thought about this question for most of my adult life in terms of when I was following Jesus. Uh, What is it that I actually want from Jesus? Now, I have two answers. I got the preacher answer and I got the the real answer. The preacher answer is I want God to be glorified with my life and I want (laughs) my life to be used as a vessel, however he sees fit. Uh, But the real answer, if I'm being completely honest, is I actually just want the life that I think I deserve. I actually just want Jesus to give me the life that I want. I don't want no testimony. I don't want no story of like, yeah, I got shot, but yo, Jesus was good. (laughs) No. I will gladly read and be encouraged by your testimonies. I don't want to have to go through a process of not seeing what God is calling me to do right in front of me and having to trust God against every single fiber of my body. I don't want to have to do that. My first thought is that none of you would want to do that either. Now, this is a tension as we are embarking on one of our other values today of talking about discipleship and what it means to actually follow Jesus. Two simple words uh, with profound, profound difficulty in actually doing it. Uh, Thankfully, I'm not alone. I think uh, if you were to be honest, there would be some version of from what you want from God. Uh, Maybe you're more spiritual than I am. Please pray for me after service. But I I think most of us, in some way, shape, or form, we actually want God to give us the life that we dream of. None of us uh, are praying, Lord, would you send challenges and opportunities my way? God, would you close so many doors that you're opening for other people? Nobody wants that. We would all love a life where everything is laid out right in front of us and it makes sense to us. But if it didn't make sense, if it wasn't the way that we thought life should go, if God was calling us to make steps in a direction that we didn't want to go in, man, that doesn't seem easy at all. Most of us, I think if we're being honest, would say, I want the life that I want. Jesus' disciples struggled with the same thing, the same men who walked with Jesus in every uh, period of his life. In Mark 10, you see it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, "'Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you.' "'What do you want me to do for you?' Jesus asked them. They answered him, "'Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You don't know what you're asking.'" Here's what James and John wanted from Jesus. Jesus, I want to sit on your left and I want my brother to sit on your right, which essentially meant I want to be in position of power when you come to power. Uh, They were thinking that Jesus' mission was to be an earthly king and that Jesus was going to be set up. And they're like, yo, if Jesus comes up, I'm trying to come up with him. So their goal in following Jesus wasn't to get Jesus. It was to get Jesus to do things for them that they wanted to do. And I think if we're being honest, uh, a lot of our hearts would say the same thing. Now, that's the rub and the tension of what it means to follow Jesus, because at its very nature and its very core, it means going against the thing that you would most naturally want. How would you answer that question from Jesus? If he were to turn around uh, and tap you on your shoulder uh, on your way home today, and you've got to be honest because it's Jesus, right? You can't just make up a, a, a lie. How would, you, how would you answer that question? What are you looking for from Jesus. What do you hope all of your interactions lead to? What is, it, what is your end game from him? Now, this is really important, however you answer this question, because as Thomas Merton once said, um, your life is shaped by the end you live for. However you would answer that question, whatever it is you want from God, whatever it is you want out of life, your life is going to be shaped around that pursuit and that desire. Whether it's money, family, yourself, Uh, fame, whatever it is, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever it is that that you're living for, that end will shape everything about you. Now, the problem with discipleship is Jesus wants to shape you, and oftentimes we have an end for our lives that won't allow Jesus to shape us in the way that he desires. I'll never forget when I saw this principle up close and personal. Uh, I have a friend that I played basketball with in college who man was so determined and dedicated to make it to the NBA. Uh, He had spent a couple of summers playing with some NBA players and they threw the battery in his back and were like, yo, you're pretty good. I think you could actually make it in the NBA. Now in college, he was an engineering major and he had a a bunch of great job opportunities um, at his door and he had a, a wonderful girlfriend that she was hoping and praying that they would stay, that he would stay close to home so they can continue to build their life together. But he went out and chased the hoop dream. You guys, guess what happened? He definitely did not make the NBA. He Nowhere close did he get close to touching the NBA. Three knee surgeries and a lot of disappointment later, uh, he basically had wrecked his life. The job opportunities that he wanted were no longer there. The relationship that he loved was completely done. The end that he was living for, the NBA, shaped everything about his life, and it pushed some other things out. Now, however you and I answer that question, uh, whatever it is that we actually want from God and what we want out of life is going to shape everything about us. Now, all throughout the New Testament, you see different definitions of what it means to be a disciple and what it means to follow Jesus. And all throughout the New Testament, whenever you see Jesus encounter someone, uh, you see uh, him use these two words, which are very simple, but also challenging at the same time. Just two words, follow me. What Jesus wants from you, if you were to to give Jesus the marker and say, hey, Jesus, I want you to fill in the blank for my life, uh, this is what he would have for you to answer. Follow me. Jesus wants us to be in a position where we actually give away the control of our lives and simply trust and follow him. One of the definitions that we've come up with for today, um, you could probably find a hundred different definitions of what discipleship is, but one of the definitions that we want to use for today in understanding what discipleship is, is it's the process, the daily process of laying down the control of your life and handing it to Jesus. Discipleship is the daily process every single day of laying down the control of your life and handing it over to Jesus. Jesus. Now, I love what Broderick said in his video, where he basically said, it's not all about figuring out the next 1,000 steps, but simply, what is that step right in front of you that God is calling you to do? And it's a process of every single day waking up and handing over the control of your life to Jesus. Uh, There's a story uh, about a man named Charles Blondin, and he was a famous tightrope walker, and it's a great illustration of what discipleship is. On September 14th, 1860, he became the first person to tightrope across a quarter mile over Niagara Falls. People from both Canada and America came out to cheer him. Uh, Charles Blondin stood on the side and said, who believes that I can walk across Niagara Falls? crowd looked and cheered. We believe, we believe. He walked across, took out a, 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 a head cover to cover his eyes. He says, who believes I can walk across Niagara Falls blindfolded? People raised their hands and said, We believe, we believe. And they cheered him from the ground. Uh, he walked across the successfully. Then, for his, one of his final acts, he pulled out a wheelbarrow and said, Who believes that I could push a person across Niagara Falls? And everybody says, We believe, we believe. He says, Great. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> the process of discipleship is not standing on the floor saying, We believe, we believe, and, 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 and chanting and shouting all of these beliefs, but rather getting into the wheelbarrow. When you get into the wheelbarrow, all of your life, you've handed over the control and the destiny of your life to someone else. And it's no longer up to you what decisions you make. It's no longer up to you the direction that you'll go. It's no longer up to you the, the, the day-to-day uh, way that you should live your life. But rather, you're putting all of your weight into the wheelbarrow, into the hands of Jesus. And wherever he goes, you go. Now, I say this is a good picture of discipleship because disciple, uh, back in biblical days, it was uh, a term that Jesus actually borrowed from the culture in which a, a teenager would leave everything they had and put their life in the, in, in the hands of a rabbi or a teacher or a master of some sort. And they would spend all of their time, all of their energy doing any and everything that the master and the rabbi told them to do in the hopes and the pursuit of becoming more like their teacher. Now, to be a disciple is to be a learner, and I think what Jesus pushes us to in calling us to lay down the control of our lives is to make sure that we are not under the illusion that we have given him the control of our lives when we're merely standing down beneath shouting, we believe. So discipleship is the daily process of laying down the control of your life and handing it over to Jesus. To be quite honest, there are a couple of things at Renaissance that keep me awake at night that I I really worry about. One is that somebody would one day find the picture of me in my junior prom when I had these really wide leg pants and these Durangos um, and it was a really terrible, terrible outfit decision. The second fear that I have is that one day you'd leave Renaissance a year from now or 70 years from now and you haven't actually grown to be a disciple of Jesus. You might have been around for the celebrations Uh, You might have filled this room every single Sunday. Uh, You might have been engaged in really meaningful relationships and friendships with people, but the day-to-day decisions of your life were not being changed at all, that you actually weren't following. Now, the thing that makes me uh, so anxious about that is I know how easy it is to have the appearance of following Jesus and not actually doing it. And here's what I found to be the litmus test in my own life in terms of whether or not I'm actually doing it, it's can I look back on my last three months, six months, a year, and see times in my life where I, Jordan Rice, would have gladly gone in this one direction, but because and only because Jesus is calling me to do this, I've gone in a different direction. Not that I've always agreed with everything, not that I've always wanted to do everything, but simply because Jesus told me to do it. I want to say this really gently because I don't want to step on too many toes. I've heard it said that if you can't look back on your life and see where there's a fork in the road of where Jesus was calling you to go and where you wanted to go, if you can't see a time when you have gone against what you wanted to do and gone with what Jesus wanted you to do, then you might not be following Jesus at all. You might just be following an idealized version of yourself. I remember a couple of uh, years ago where... Um, uh, I was uh, dealing with some people, and people are messy, and um, I I felt firmly in some conversations that were going on, and I was about to clap back, you know what I'm saying? Somebody was talking greasy, and I had it ready, (laughs) locked and loaded in the clip. I was about to air it out, and I remember just thinking to myself, Jordan, how does Jesus want you to handle this situation? And it's almost like the, the, you know, uh, the voice in your head, you just try to quiet it out, la, 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 I don't even hear what you're saying. And I remember hearing, listen, this person uh, may have said what they said, leave it alone, leave it alone, pray for them. Don't make a public thing, your position and your voice is so much louder than theirs. It's unfair to use this, uh, to use your position to, to quiet somebody else. So don't say anything, leave it alone. Everything within me wanted to say something. Wanted to make sure everybody knew every single step of the conversation along the way. Everything that I was hearing in my prayers and in 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 reading scripture was, "Do not repay evil for evil. Don't do it." I would be afraid for you if, when you're looking back on your last 12 months, that there are not times and periods where you would want to do one thing and there's a different way that Jesus might be calling you, and you never sense that tension in your life. To be a disciple means to be a follower. the a description in the New Testament that I want us to uh, look at for the rest of today. Um, it's from Matthew 28, and it starts like this. Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is a really common scripture when you hear about discipleship, and it starts off with a line that I've glossed over about a hundred times, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth uh, has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. And I was wondering, why would Jesus start the conversation uh, with that? Now, the reason I think he said it is this, out of all of the things in life that you can answer to, out of all of the people that you can be led by, out of all of the circumstances that you would allow to influence you, Jesus is making the case here that I am the best person for you to submit your life, uh, submit your life into, the plans of your life uh, into my hands. I am the greatest decision for you to make. To put your life, to give the control of your life over to me is the best decision you will ever make because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this scripture comes right after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and essentially Jesus is coming to them as a resurrected Savior, and early on in Christianity, the resurrection was almost the vast majority of what the disciples talked about, because if this dude really raised from the dead, then what part of my life should I keep back from him? But if he didn't raise from the dead, who cares what he says? I can take it, or I can leave it. Now, the early Christians recognized this, and that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ is not raised, we are men and women most miserable. The reason uh, Scripture points to this, and and Jesus says this, um, in us deciding to give away the control in our life, we have to evaluate what actually has the authority in our life. Better question, what should that authority be? Um, A lot of us allow voices to to guide us, to shape us, that have no business shaping us and guiding us, including ourselves. I remember in law school, uh, we went to one of those law schools where every uh, first day of class, they would say, turn to your left and turn to your right. One of these people will not be here next year. And if both of them are here, it's you. You ain't gonna be here next year. (laughs) Uh, As a result, people were so nervous, and they were terrified, uh, and they were willing to take any piece of advice That they can get. Everyone was trying to get a leg up on someone else. And I remember this one dude that would walk around the library and he was always giving cats like the most fantastical theories about what was going to be on the test. And I knew one of his friends and I knew what his midterm grades were. I'm like, bro, you had C's and D's. I am not about to trust my legal success to you. You do not have that authority in my life. Some people did follow his opinion, and they did follow his wisdom and his guidance, and his entire study group failed out of law school. Jesus gives a really harsh scripture in in Matthew 15 where he says, if the blind follow the blind, they both fall into the ditch. Now, it's one thing for the first blind person to fall because it's like, well, bro, you should have known you were blind. Why are you leading people around? Why would you punish the person? Why would you punish the person who was just following and was trying to be a good follower? Here's what I know to be true, Your, our motivations, the sincerity and the depth of our belief doesn't matter. What, what does matter is, are we following the person who has the proper authority in our life that we should be following? Most people will say that uh, this current generation and our, our current culture struggles with authority, and I think that's partially true. I think to a certain degree, yes, we struggle with authority, but the real truth is, I think we just think that we are the authority. But if you were to look at your grades, your midterm grades for your life, and all of the decisions that you've made, and all of the ways that you have thought this was definitely the way you should go, if you were to look back, I think you'd see a lot of C's and D's in there. There'd be a lot of things that you look back on and that you were confident about, and you could thank God now that God didn't allow certain things in your life. Things that you were confident and you were confidently wrong in. So Jesus first tells us uh, that he is the authority figure, and he does that not to... Uh, control us, but to offer us an option of someone that actually does know the way forward. See, here's the thing about discipleship. For Jesus to say that all authority has been given to me, he's essentially saying that the real total story of discipleship means that it is not all up to you. It's not all up to you to, to, to follow perfectly and to navigate every single scenario. Jesus is saying, "I, your ability to follow me is linked to my authority. And if Jesus can rise from the dead, in Romans 8 and 11, it says that he who, has given, uh, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Jesus is also promising us that the path of discipleship is not a series of disconnected choices, but rather it is uh, rooting ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ, following him and trusting him that he will not leave us alone. So how do we actually do this? Uh, we have spent the last four years uh, trying to answer this question, and to date, this is my, my best Uh, crack at understanding what it means to actually uh, be able to give the control over of my life and put it in the hands of Jesus. One, I know that it's a daily decision. Every single day, I have to make it all over again. I I try to rely on amazing experiences I've had with Jesus from last week, and it it never seems to carry over that far. So how do we actually uh, do it? How do we follow Jesus? Uh, The description, verse 20 where Jesus says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is the path of discipleship is simply adhering to the things that Jesus has called us to adhere to. How do you do that? I preach sermons about discipleship where I didn't give people any explanation on how they do it, and people went home frustrated and confused, like, all right, I know I should do it, but how do I actually start to take steps in in that direction? Uh, The first thing that I've found... In in my life and certainly in the life of others, the way that you and I will learn how to follow and observe whatever Jesus directs us to do and commands us to do is you and I need a meaningful, uh, often engagement with scripture. I've been a Christian for a long time and I've never had a period in my life where I was close to Jesus and far from scripture. I've never had a period in my life. I've never seen it in anybody else's life. Now, really quickly, whenever we talk about the disciplines, uh, the first thing that people start to think about is all of the ways that they could be doing a better job, and believe you me, I was thinking about that this morning, like, God, I'm going to get on stage and talk about a meaningful engagement with Scripture, and I don't feel like mine has been as meaningful as it should have been this week, and listen, you could have always done better, right? In your prayer life, in reading Scripture, you could have always done better, but here's what I want us to focus in on today. Uh, The way that God wants to direct you will be based on what you see and hear in Scripture. Uh, There's a story about more than half a century ago. There's a man uh, named Dr. Alfred Tomatis, and he was a hearing doctor. And he had the most curious case of his 50-year career. There was a renowned opera singer that came in to to him, and this opera singer uh, could not sing one of these notes that he had been singing for years. Dr. Tomatis discovered that even an average opera singer produces about uh, 140 decibel sound waves at just uh, a yard's distance. And that's a little bit louder than a military jet taking off from an aircraft carrier. And that sound of an opera singer is even louder inside of someone's skull. That discovery led to this diagnosis. The opera singer had been deafened by the sound of his own voice. And the reason Uh, that he was unable to sing that note was because he was unable to hear that note. Here's what Dr. Tomatis discovered. The voice can only reproduce what the ear can hear. Here's what I would say about my life and your life. You and I can only really reproduce what we hear. If you ever talk to someone who's had hearing issues, uh, you'll also notice that they have speech impediments and difficulty pronouncing words in the same way that someone uh, that that doesn't have uh, a hearing impediment would. And the problem is not their vocal cords. The problem is not their anatomy, the problem is in their hearing. They are limited, not based off of what they are physiologically capable of doing, they are limited based on their ability to hear or to not hear. If there's anything that I think that the enemy would want to steal from you, is your ability and your connection to hear the words of God. Yes. Yeah. You and I can only do what we hear. In Matthew, where Jesus is talking to the enemy in the wilderness, over and over and over again, you see him tempted uh, by the enemy and trying to get Jesus to go astray. And over and over, Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Over and over and over again, Jesus uses the word in his life. I've seen periods and I've seen uh, times in my life where I was able to spend meaningful time engaging with scripture. And man, that that just changes everything about me. In my own life, whenever I don't engage in scripture, you'll know, uh, my my staff and the people who work with me will know, uh, my anxiety is always high because I'm always so worried about trying to control everything in a moment because my trust level is so low. And how could it be high? I'm disconnected from God and his words in my life. Now there's a number of things that we're trying to do at Renaissance to engage our engagement with scripture. The first is in the community groups, which start today and Tuesday and Wednesday. And the format has changed. And this year, we're spending way more time just reading scripture out loud and going through it together, asking the question, what does the Lord, uh, what am I hearing the Lord say from this text? Um, And we're hoping that that's going to engage uh, you more and more with scripture. Secondly, we also know that a lot of you guys have come to us and you don't know where to start, right? You don't know uh, how to, even where to begin. We have some classes uh, planned for this fall. And we hope that you guys take advantage of those on how to read the Bible and other classes of theology to help you get a a better look at the big picture of what Scripture is in your life. Uh, But make no mistake about it, God wants to form you. God wants to lead you and and root you. And you and I will only be able to do what we are hearing God tell us through his word. Now, the second thing that we need um, to to really be able to actually follow Jesus, um, we talked about this a bunch last week. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon is uh, deep relationships with other followers of Jesus. You don't need to know everybody, but you need to know somebody for real. And that somebody needs to know you. Uh, the scripture that we pointed out last week in our message on community, where we talked about the importance and the value of a body of believers around you, motivating you, challenging you, encouraging you, uh, was, comes from Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And it says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one, pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. All of us have blind spots. Uh, All of us have areas in our life that we just need encouragement. All of us have ways that we just will never be able to see God for ourselves, and we need deep relationships with other people to move us in the, so that we would be able to hear from God what God is calling us to do and to give us the courage and the encouragement to actually go out and to do it. And the last thing that, man, we desperately need uh, is emotional health and emotional awareness. Pete Scazzaro mentions it in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I, and I hope this point actually raises more questions than it gives answers. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says, it is impossible to grow to spiritual maturity while remaining emotionally immature. I've seen so many people, I've read the Bible with so many people, we've gone through Colossians, we've talked about Greek words, and what does this mean, and what is the root context of this verb, only to see people... make the same mistakes that they've been making for years and years. And I was like, man, why is it that people just can't seem to get ahead? And it's oftentimes because we come to God with lenses on our eyes from things that have happened to us in our past, our interactions with people. And that changes the way we see God. That changes the way we see ourselves. One of the most controversial sermons that I ever preached at Renaissance, the one that stirred up probably some of the most negative emotions in people, uh, wasn't about anything... Uh, that you would think is controversial. It's not something that you would think uh, would cause such a response. Uh, It was the Lord's Prayer Series, and I preached on the first two words, Our Father. So many people were deeply upset by that. And it's not because the scripture in and of itself has anything to do or that scripture is intended to make people feel upset. It's because a lot of us have very complicated relationships with your father's And to come to God as your father is a complicated set of scenarios. And if you don't know what's going on in your brain, if you don't know the lenses that you're carrying to scripture, to your relationships, it's going to keep you in a place where you will never be able to really grow and move past a certain point in life. Now, there's a number of tools that you can use to really do some investigation in terms of how you're processing uh, uh, life and what are the ways in, that you receive messages in this world, one of the tools that I have found helpful in the last number of months has been something called the Enneagram. And it's basically like an emotional health Myers-Briggs. Um, and basically it, it allows, it's a tool to help you identify some of the messages you heard as a child. For me, I'm a performer. And performers believe that... The only way that you have value in any setting is if you're actually doing a good job. So people don't really love you. They just like that you're doing a good job. And I carry that into everything. I carry that into my relationships. I carry that into the way that I approach God. So much so that the times that I'm the most prayerless are when that I feel like God is mad at me and that God doesn't welcome me because I haven't done a good job. Now, if I don't know that about myself, if I'm not praying through these things uh, uh, and, and knowing these are the lenses that I'm bringing into it, man, our, my maturity and my ability to follow Jesus will absolutely be limited. Uh, I read a tweet, um, and this is how I do most of my sermon prep, uh, but I did a t- <laughs> uh, Rich Biotis in uh, New Life Church in Queens, a uh, phenomenal pastor, he says, in order to die to ourself, we first need a self. We first need to know who we are. Scripture says, put off the old man. Who is that old man? What does he look like? What are his habits? What are their tendencies? What is it that you're supposed to be distancing yourself from? Paul in the scripture in Romans 7 talks about, I don't even know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And don't you and I think that it's worth the time to investigate why we're doing the things that we're doing. For some of you guys, it's counseling. For others, it's engaging in different emotional health practices to make sure that we're realizing what is going on beneath the surface because so much, so much of our life is hindered and, uh, and, and kind of cut short because we don't know what's going on inside of our hearts. Now the last thing I want us to end with today is an assurance that Jesus gives us. In the pathway, in the process of discipleship, I never want you to forget about this one line that Jesus tells us, and this is meant to be the most comfort. And the biggest promise that I I want you to walk away with, in verse 20, he says, and remember, I am with you, not sometimes, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. In the highest moments when you're really proud of yourself, he's with you. In the low moments where you feel like you can't get it together, he's with you. In the middle when you don't even know what's going on, he is with you. The gospel message is that God came in the form of Jesus to come to us because uh, God, by his very nature, desires relationship with us. And Jesus is not off-put by a bad week or a bad month. And he promises us that he is with us even until the very end of the age. Some of these disciples that Jesus said these words to made some pretty colossal failures and mistakes in their life. And you know what? Jesus was with them. To get into the wheelbarrow with Jesus, to hand over the control of your life to his means that he promises that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. He is committed. He's not the shepherd that runs away when there's trouble or runs away when it's a bad week. He's a shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. And in doing so, he promises us and commits to us that he will never leave us and forsake us.